Hello and welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by New York Times beauty columnist and founder of Ellis Brooklyn, B. Shapiro. I consider B. Shapiro to be something of a beauty oracle. Having covered style and beauty for the New York Times for over 12 years, Bee has interviewed countless CEOs and celebrities, been afforded unbridled access to the beauty cabinets and handbags of your favourite actors and actresses, and trialled products that you and I haven't even heard of yet. I've long admired Bee and her work, not just for her insider knowledge and ability to list New York City's top five facialists and their contact details on next to no notice, but for her intellect, her wit, and of course, her writing style. A law school graduate and former hedge fund attorney, Bee became a fashion writer for the New York Times in 2008 and was soon relocated to the beauty department, where she began penning her column Skin Deep, which has since been published as a book of 40-plus interviews. In 2013, pregnant with her first daughter, Bee noticed that many of the brands that were landing on her desk were making the move to clean formulations. Clean beauty was undoubtedly on the rise, with luxury brands embracing what was once a whole food style subsection of beauty. But Bee noticed that very few fragrance houses were following suit. In 2015, Ellis Brooklyn was born, a luxury niche fragrance house devoted to clean, small batch made scents. I've learned so much through watching Bee's work from afar, so having over an hour to chat with her was a genuine privilege. Having worked in beauty for so long, Bee's insights into cosmetics and into the media are invaluable to anyone with an interest in either. I've so enjoyed speaking to the founders of quote-unquote niche brands of late, And something that keeps coming up is the increasing appetite consumers have to align themselves with brands they really do believe in. Brands with a story brought to life by founders they can trust. This episode was recorded remotely, myself in Melbourne and B in New York. So if you would prefer to read the interview, you can find the complete transcript on glowjournal.com. In this conversation, B and I discuss how social media has affected traditional journalism, how bringing others into the fold of your business keeps you accountable, and why consumers are no longer content with simply consuming beauty. They want to connect with it. born in Taiwan and grew up outside of Seattle. What is your very, very earliest memory of scent? Ooh, my first memory of scent was actually really early because I moved to Seattle when I was three and a half. And I remember seeing snow for the first time. And I know this is a crazy early memory, but I think it was so jarring that it would just stuck in my mind. I, I felt and smelled snow for the first time when I was around like four. So I really, really remember it. It was such a clear memory. And I was at Mount Rainier, which was where our uncle, who was already living in the Seattle area, took us. And I remember feeling the snow. I remember the smell. It was like a really, really sharp memory. And I don't really remember much, like four or five years old. I mean, yeah. I've ne- What does so snow smell like? I've never seen snow. Oh, my goodness. Uh, outrageous. So snow- 
I know. So, I mean, you do have to smell it because it is unique. It's a little metallic-y, actually. And it's very fresh. And it's very, I mean, it smells cold. I mean, you smell it, you're like, ah, that makes so much sense. That's that's what smoke, snow smells like. Mm-hmm. But um, it's so cold smelling that that's where that metallic feeling comes in. Oh, there you go. Maybe that's the next Ellis Brooklyn fragrance, snow. Fresh and cold and metallic. Away from scent specifically, what is your first memory of beauty in a broader sense? Oh my goodness. So my mom is obsessed with skincare. So I remember being like in second grade and she, she still does this by the way, but she makes these homemade masks like out of fruit and out of like egg whites. (laughs) I mean, it was so funny. I was just over at their place, like over Christmas and like in her freezer are these like Ziploc baggies of fruit. I'm like, what is this? And she's like, oh, I pound it down to like put on my face. So yeah, I had my first face mask I think when I was like eight and I did an egg white mask so (laughs) beauty runs deep in our family (laughs) how's her skin looking is it working her skin looks pretty good I would say I would say that she should do some services at this point because I think one part about having skin that can pigment is that you can only do so much with products right so Mm. I mean now we're living in the age of services so I think that certain things you just can't tackle with like, you know, creams and products and stuff like that. I mean, marketing will have us all thinking otherwise, but. I know, I know. I've been covering beauty for so long and don't get me wrong. I actually love beauty marketing. I think there's something so fun about it. Mm. Uh, But I do think that sometimes like you can't look like JLo who looks (laughs) like she's like 25 just on products, you know, like that's just not happening. That's how I feel about Jane Fonda, who's come up quite a bit on this podcast. She looks incredible. She's amazing. Now, I understand that you majored in art and finance before going to law school, but when you were a child, what did you think you'd be when you grew up? So this is something I like to tell people in interviews because I think this is not spoken of enough. I did not know. So I think a lot of people, yeah, so many people are like, and great if you knew when you were like eight years old I want to run my own beauty business I mean that's amazing you know I honestly had no clue uh (laughs) I was probably playing in the sticks um uh so shockingly I know this is not the way the world anymore but I've never had an internship Mm -hmm. um I just you know I just went out and did things and I got jobs and I, I don't come from a family of means. So every job I had had was paid. I just, some of the jobs were, I mean, theoretically useless for a career. Like I was a hostess at a seafood restaurant. I mean, that teaches um, you very important um, people skills and sure, a sure. high pressure and, environment. Yes. It also teaches you not to eat so many clam chowder bread bowls at, in, in one summer. Yeah, that's life skills. That is life skills, you know, <laughs> wellness skills. Um, so, so I, I did not know. And so that's why I went to law school. Actually, I, I had no internships lined up. I had no job lined up out of college. I had good grades. I just had zero, I quote unquote, real work experience aside from my like part-time jobs. And so I looked at these like um, graduate school tests. And I was like, Oh, I could, I could take the LSAT. I studied on my own. I did not even take a course. (laughs) Um, and I went to law school. 
So, um, so yeah, I don't think you have to have all the answers. And off to Georgetown you went. So you just thought, okay, this looks doable. This will be fine. It sounds very legally blonde. Oh, this will be this will be <laughs> fine. So funny. I mean, this is I don't know if this is a call. I mean, this is obviously not meant to be a compliment, but I was working at a restaurant at the time and uh, it was like a brewery pub restaurant and I was a waitress. And I told them, oh, yeah, I'm going to law school. They're like, what? We didn't even know you were smart. <laughs> Thank you very much. Always good to hear from a fan. Oh, God. <laughs> Hilarious. It was amazing. <laughs> we didn't even know you were smart. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, wow. <laughs> oh. I was not the best waitress. That's why, I think. I oh. really... I really admire waiters, waitresses, bartenders, because I was horrible. <laughs> I've I've done the same thing. I was not good. I'm too competitive for it. So I would try and compete with the other waitresses. Like, I'm going to be able to sell an extra side. And uh, I guess we'll see wow. who's sold the most sides at the end of the night. And they're like, that is not the point of this job. <laughs> you, you need to stop being so pushy. Oh, that was not my problem. My problem was I couldn't remember, like, I would get orders that was like uh, salad with no croutons, no dressing, no iceberg, uh, spinach instead of iceberg, like 10 million substitutions. And I would just get really frazzled. (laughs) But I think that's on them. I think the more substitutions you add, the more chances are of you getting served the wrong thing. People should be aware. That's right. They should have. They should adjust their expectations. A hundred percent. I mean, if that's one takeaway, from just adjust your expectations. That's right. This is my takeaway from this podcast. I Another- hope I'm sharing my wisdom. Absolutely. Just life skills, left, right, and center. So you graduated. You worked as a hedge fund attorney for about a year before you decided that you did not like it which we will get to, but were there any learnings that you took from that time as a lawyer that you find you're still applying to your work now, either as a writer or as a business owner? Oh, absolutely. So I would say, I would say I took away from law and law firm life, like two huge things, actually. Uh, One is work ethic. I just, I've worked harder in my my life. I was always a smart girl, despite what the my <laughs> colleagues thought. Um, and because I was smart, I always kind of was able to skate by even in college. And then I got to law school and I was like, oh my goodness, everybody's smart and educated and they work crazy hard. And it was just, it was a reckoning for me. And so I will always remember that work ethic, even at like the worst times where I'm like covering like some sort of red carpet, which I hate, I hate covering red carpets. Um, I will dig down deep and be like, wow, this, it could be a lot worse. You could be stuck in chained to a desk, you know, doing contracts. So um, I always think about that. And then two is I do think knowing or having the capability or knowing that, you know, I am a lawyer. And when I first started out switching over to journalism and to beauty and to fashion, it does give you credibility and does give you not just this like faux sense of credibility, but like, wow, you actually learned something. You actually learned a skill that's like powerful. Like I can read a contract. Maybe I also need to hire an attorney to help me look at this contract that's a specialist, but I do have that, like, I'm not going in some, into a business deal blind. So, um, so yeah, I, I definitely... I'm so grateful for that experience. If you asked me, honestly, though, 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh, I'm still paying my law school loans. Like, I can't believe I made this mistake. Um, Fast forward 10 years later. It's all perspective, uh, isn't it? It is perspective. 
It is. Yeah, it's funny, right? And also 10 years ago, I don't think I used my law degree that much. But once I started Ellis Brooklyn, uh, it has really, really, really come into play. So there you go. Well, it's all it's all worked out for the best then. So you had already moved to New York to take that job as a lawyer. Was Mm -hmm. it the city that inspired you to leave that role? Was it just that you didn't enjoy it? Was it a combination of things? So I've always wanted to get to New York City. So um, I applied to law schools here. I oh, so, I mean, to put the cherry on top of the ice cream sundae, I also applied to law school super late. So like I was waitlisted at a bunch of schools. I was waitlisted at Columbia Law School. I've been wanting to get to New York for so long. I definitely over-romanticized it. <laughs> wrong I love New York I truly do but I like so many people uh romanticized it I watched Felicity I don't know I don't know if you guys know that show we do it was slightly before my time but I remember it very well I remember the ads certainly um I definitely took Felicity too much for real life (laughs) I was like yes I want to be Felicity so uh (laughs) <laughs> and I got obsessed with New York City for all sorts of reasons. And so when I took the law, when I was applying for law firms, I specifically applied in New York because I wanted to get to New York. So I don't think it's the city necessarily that I left law. I think that I was, I never should have been a lawyer in the first place. Um, I was only a lawyer actually for seven months and then I quit. And it wasn't because I couldn't do the job. I could have. I just... I just thought there was more happiness for me somewhere else. I just thought that there, this can't be life. That's that, that literally is it there. It's nothing profound. It's just that, wow, I don't want to be that person that complains about their job. I want to be a person that loves their job. See, there's something about that that I think that sort of is profound because there are so many people that do come home from work every day, hate what they're doing and just think, you know what, I'm just going to stick it out because leaving might be more difficult. This is true. So I do think, I don't think every single person has to love their job. I think you can definitely be, yeah, you can definitely be really good at what you do and make an amazing, very stable salary with great benefits and like have a good life and like, you know, focus on your spare time to be these other things that you want to be. So I don't think it's like every person has to have this like amazing, passionate career. Mm. That's just not me though. And I think I realized that when I was working, you know, from 10 to 10. So that was my hours basically, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. It was extremely long hours. So I was like, wow, well, if I'm spending this much time at something, this is my life, you know? And I didn't want, I didn't want it to be frittered away. And I didn't really see an end game. Like I didn't see, okay, well, if I stayed in law for 10 years, like I'm gonna then love it and then then be like all sad. I couldn't see anything. It was just like a dead end for me. So um, yeah, and I also realized that I am that person that needs to be passionate about their career. So I don't wanna put pressure on people by saying like every single person has to like be like enthralled with their career because I don't, I don't know if that's true. Um, I think you just have to know yourself. Mm, I would agree with that. And I think there's a difference between coming home and just being completely miserable because then you can't enjoy the downtime. But there are some people that can finish the working day and switch off and then enjoy the rest of their time. Yes, yes. And, you know, I I do have to say this, you know, having started my own business and even with the New York Times writing, I have a job that I can't switch off. So when I have a bad day, it is really (laughs) profoundly bad. 
sad. I mean, talk about profound. Um, it, it's not one of those jobs where I'm like, okay, well, I messed up today. Like, uh, it's okay. Like, I'll just pass it on to my next coworker or like, I'll fix it tomorrow. No, it's not like that. When you are passionate about something, that means when you mess up, it also hurts extra. So it's, you know, there's pluses and minuses. Mm. So you left your job and you became a freelance fashion and art writer. Now you'd majored in art, so there was clearly already an interest there, but was fashion something that you'd always been drawn to? Yes. I was that, you know, back when people actually went to the bookstore, I was that kid that like went to the bookstore and pulled out all those extra large fashion magazines from Europe and like sat there and read them and like looked at collections. It was, yeah, I was obsessed with fashion. I did read somewhere that at one point you had an assignment curating contemporary art collections for private clients. How did that come about? Oh my gosh, that sounds so fancy, but it's it actually sounds not so true. fancy. I read it and not I was true. like, she's fancy. Okay, so so um <laughs> uh so probably I don't know where that came from, but um long time I, ago. I after dig I started, really, really deep with this. <laughs> so I don't know who wrote that, but there could be one of two avenues. So one is that when I quit the law firm, I like had a bunch of odd end jobs and one of them was working for a major art collector, but I definitely was not curating anything because uh, I was just literally filing. I was like a filing assistant. <laughs> um, but then last year I did take a consulting job with a private members club where I worked with curators to curate mm-hmm. the art exhibit. So I don't know which one I might have came from. But- it would have been in reference to the earlier one. So nice to hear that it wasn't glamorous straight off the bat and it was filing. Oh my God, no. It was, <laughs> I was like filing and like putting stuff on like little pieces of paper. It was not fun. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Filing is another important skill. This is all leading up to the big reveal, I think. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> now, if my research serves me, it was in around 2008-ish that you got a job covering fashion and lifestyle for the New York Times style section. You were the most junior in that team, and then soon thereafter, an opportunity presented itself for you to move over to beauty. Now, beauty and fashion are, of course, inextricably linked, but there are a few differences if we're looking things like ingredients and understanding the skin and so forth. So did that move from fashion over to beauty present any challenges? So fashion and beauty, I actually think are quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, I even think the mentality is different. I think, you know, obviously it's changed, but definitely when I moved over at that time, um, beauty was not, you know, today you look at beauty and so mega on social media, it's such a mega, mega industry. And it always has been, it's always been a huge moneymaker, but I don't think it really had its own legs when I first started covering it. Instead, it sort of followed backstage of fashion week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Chanel, like amazing nail colors, like the, the backstage eyeshadows or whatever it was they were using at Mac, that kind of thing. So that was when I started. Um, and I have to be honest with you, even despite my early memories of like skincare with my mom, I wasn't a crazy beauty person. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't. I think sometimes you either fall in like, are you a fashion person or are you a beauty person? Um, and so when I first got the job, I was very grateful because I was like number five fashion reporter out of five. <laughs> I was getting like the worst assignments. Um, like the assignments that people couldn't report out. They're like, why don't you try? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. 
uh, yeah, it was it was tough. You know, I mean, New York Times is competitive. It's gonna it's going to be. And so when I first got beauty, I was I felt really lucky and really blessed. But I wasn't necessarily like, oh, I love beauty because I was a fashion person. Um, and then now I look back and I'm so grateful that happened because as I feel like as I've gotten older, first of all, I care way more about beauty. I'm a huge beauty fanatic now, uh, partly probably because I need it because I'm 39. <laughs> you don't look at that. Uh, oh, thank you. That's it's called, that's called beauty services. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I felt like I grew up with beauty and I think it's much harder to grow up with fashion because I think as much as I love fashion, when you're 25 and you're like running around New York city, like you're willing to suffer and wear those crazy heels and that crazy. I'm sorry. Oh, so, don't be silly. I've had fire alarms uh-huh. go off in the background. So this is nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't supposed to be, it wasn't supposed to be like that, but I'm so happy it worked out because when you're like 25 and you're wearing like a little mini skirt, you're freezing, you're freezing out and you're wearing your super high heels and you're suffering for fashion. It's cool. When you're 35 and you have two kids and you like can barely wash your face, suddenly going to a spa facial is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really care what handbag I'm wearing, you know? So, um, I really did grow up with fashion, uh, with beauty and I'm so grateful that it all happened. Well, we're all grateful that you ended up in beauty because now we get to read your work and use your products. So everyone's a winner. Now, naturally, I do want to talk all things Ellis Brooklyn, but rather selfishly, I do want to spend some time on your role at the New York Times. I listened to your episode of Fat Mascara in which you were talking about how people often associate the beauty industry with vanity and you mentioned that your response to anyone who thinks beauty is a bit fluffy and goes oh beauty that's nice you're like everyone cares about it which is so spot on so I would love to hear more on that that interview was three years ago now are you still finding that people are dismissive of beauty Oh, a hundred percent because I still have, I have three columns for the New York times right now. One is mm. beauty related. One is fashion related. And one is like wellness, uh, fitness, work yeah. related lifestyle. The hardest one to book is a beauty one still. And still. the reason still, and mm. it's extremely popular. All three columns are extremely popular, but I think there's something about beauty that people still kind of like look down on. And it's really unfortunate, or people who want to be quote unquote taken seriously want to look down on. And it is really unfortunate because for example, I'm always trying to get an older actress. Um, I hate the word older, but just it just is, right? Yeah. Because we have, the New York Times has a readership that's more like in the 40s, 50s even. Um, and so I'm always trying to get somebody that's like their peer, you know, like their age group. It is so difficult uh, when there's when the actresses or or well-known CEOs or whatever uh, accomplished person gets to a certain level in their career, they don't feel like they need to do any video interviews or share any of their secrets, and it's really too bad, right? Mm. Because then you have. 20 something year olds telling the world what beauty should be. And, and it's actually this like self feeding cycle. And it's really unfortunate. Well, sort of on that and on people sharing and, as you've said, telling the world what beauty should be, you have interviewed 
just about everyone of note about their beauty routines and they've all opened up to you in really great detail. And I think part of the reason people enjoy reading beauty is because we are so inherently curious about what people are using. Maybe we're nosy, whichever it is. When you began your column, social media wasn't really part of the equation, but now with Instagram, everyone is sharing what they're using every day. How do you as a journalist, ensure that what you're getting during these interviews goes beyond what we've already seen on socials? So I go so far back in the social media lexicon that I was the first backstage beauty reporter to cover beauty backstage for Fashion Week on Instagram, don't even exist, on Vine and Twitter. A pioneer. (laughs) Um, so I've definitely seen this movement, like literally from the from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that the unfortunate thing that I've seen, first of all, I have to say I love Instagram. I love all the different forms of media. But when this movement first happened, which started with blogs, if people even remember that, uh, and then I went to Vine and some images that you could post on Twitter, which was a big deal, and it was these horrible resolution images that you could post on Twitter. And then it moved to Instagram. All these little progressions originally was just amazingly authentic interaction really between influencers, uh, some early editors too that were on board and audience. And it was in some ways a backlash to like the established women's magazines at the time. And we're talking about beauty, right? Because everybody felt like the women's magazines were like too sponsored, didn't really tell the truth. And suddenly you had this amazing blogger, amazing influencer was telling you exactly the way it should be and giving you like more approachable tips. Sure. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this era. I do. I was working in fashion at this time and there was a a whole scandal, if you will, with Fashion Week here all of the mm. newspapers were covering the fact that Instagrammers and bloggers were getting the front row seats and the journalists had been pushed back. So it was a. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That was like a moment, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It happened here too for New York fashion week, but so the original inspiration for influencers is the fact that they weren't sponsored and then they got bigger. It got much more obviously into a business model And now today, I think influencers in general are much less reliable. So, I mean, if you look at anybody's influencer account, they're just spawn con everywhere. I mean, you literally can't really trust what they're saying because one day they're wearing this perfume, another day they're wearing that perfume. Um, I do think there are exceptions. I think that there are some influencers that really try to build trust instead of just like 10 million products. Um, so there's definitely exceptions. I just think you really have to weed out so many people in order to get that. So I, I think it's a tricky time we're living in right now because I do think women are having a hard time figuring out where they should look for, for and not just women, like anybody looking for grooming or beauty tips, um, where, where they should look. Because I mean, I, I mean, I check out a lot of the influencer stuff and I only would say I trust only a few people's recommendations and they're not quote unquote necessarily influencers. Some of them are store owners. Some of them are, you know, chemists. So that kind of thing. I'm glad you've mentioned that you don't necessarily look to traditional influencers and that you are looking to store owners and things because another thing that stuck with me from that Fat Mascara interview was that you used the term 
notable people rather than celebrity, given, I guess, the impact that social media has had on who we watch and who we follow. Has that shift in who we look to to be influenced changed the way that you write at all? I think what's going on right now, and I actually had this uh, conversation with my editor maybe a year ago, but I still think this is true. So I think I see it from two different ways. I think the idea of influence is really interesting because we have so many influencers now, right? Mm. And if you look at their number of followers, they should be you know, to the moon. They should be able to sell anything. But I think that sometimes you get influencers, influencers in quotes now, who just have massive followings for pretty pictures and can't actually move product and can't actually really sell anything, you know? It's just a pretty photo that people like to click like on. And I think sometimes figuring out who is what is really, really tough. So is that person still an influencer or still a notable person? I don't know. And I say that because as I book my columns more and more, and as news organizations and media care about clicks more and more, um, I have to say a lot of the influencers I, I have booked have shockingly huge influencers, by the way, have not been able to move like readership or traffic at all uh, versus somebody like I did an interview on Sharon Stone a while back and she she is somebody that's like amazing, has a beautiful, obviously still beautiful, has a great view regimen. She was super honest and she does not have a big social media following at all. And her article did so well. So I think that notion of like followers and influence and who is a celebrity, who is not, has gotten really muddled, actually. I would agree with that. I think there's a real difference between the number of followers you have and then actually having clout and, mm-hmm. you know, having that trust. Because it's more mm-hmm. about dialogue. Sometimes I think the ones that have millions upon millions of followers they don't have the luxury of being able to answer everyone's questions and talk with people and that's such a big part of it that's a very good point and it's funny that word clout you mentioned because I keep hearing that more and more again Mm. which is a good thing it's good that people are talking about it because it can be so I guess confusing for consumers I don't know what it's like over there but they brought in laws surrounding what you can post on Instagram here and that you have to legally disclose whether something is sponsored, but so few people are doing it and it's a difficult thing to prove. Uh, So we definitely have that with the FCC where we have to disclose. Mm. I think the tricky part is that SponCon is so prevalent now that I'm not sure people even care, you know? At the same time, I always say this, there's the trendy products that you see on Instagram and then there's products that actually work. Sometimes they dovetail and sometimes they cross, but a lot of times I'll get DMs like asking me, you know, what vitamin C serum I should use. And I'll be like, well, which, which kind of recommendation do you want? Do you want something like really hardcore, but not cool? Or do you, do you want something cool and that, that works? You know, there's all these different categories now. Mm. Let's talk Ellis Brooklyn. I understand that you noticed that the beauty industry was going largely paraben free and was moving away from, you know, toxins, if you will, but the fragrance space didn't seem to be making that shift. This was around 2013 that you started thinking about it. Can you talk me through that time? Yeah. So I was pregnant with my daughter, Ellis, at the time. And so I was still testing so much, you know, so many products from the New York Times, all categories, really. And uh, this was the rise, I would say the change in clean beauty. So 
a lot of people don't realize that clean beauty has been around for some time, but clean beauty historically was those like Whole Foods brands. Nothing mm-hmm. wrong with Whole Foods brands, but they just aren't aspirational, right? Yeah. They're a little bit like the ones you would find in health food stores and like they're a little more alternative looking. You certainly would not see them at like a at a major, you know, retailer. So that that was like always there. And so when I saw though around then, around it was really 2012, 2013, was this rise of clean beauty that was luxurious and efficacious and interesting and trend-driven, but also clean. So that was Tata Harper. It was RMS and makeup. It was just these really cool pioneer clean beauty brands. And I saw it across several different categories and I really didn't see it in fragrance at all. And I think that me, so I think you're either a fragrance lover or you're not. Uh, I'm a true, I'm like a real, real fragrance fanatic and always have been. And uh, for me as a writer, I just find fragrance so interesting because you literally can use no words and you can smell something. I'll pull up a memory so sharp and so clear, like it's better than reading a page, a page description about it. So um, I always found fragrance fascinating and to not see, to see that category be so entrenched and so, so still, like not moving at all. I just felt like there must be something different. There must be a different alternative. So that, that is really where the original idea for Ellis Brooklyn came about. You launched the brand in 2015. Now we talk quite a lot about the process of things on this podcast because it's one thing to have this great idea but it is another thing entirely to to start to find a manufacturer to choose ingredients to source packaging and so forth so where did you start where to from having the idea oh my goodness uh I asked for so many favors that at one point I thought about quitting and I was like oh my goodness I can't quit because I asked for too many favors that'd be so embarrassing (laughs) You're accountable once you've started bringing other people into the fold. Yeah. So some of these people, some of these manufacturers are not Googleable. Like they were hard to find. So I literally was asking everybody, and I have to be honest, as wonderful as the beauty industry is, it wasn't always transparent or clear who was using what. So I'm talking about things that are not sexy. So things like boxes, things like sprays, things like glass Well, they're important box. things to talk about because I feel like people think I'm going to launch a beauty brand and beauty is really glamorous, so my life's going to be glamorous. But it's it's boxes and pumps and lids. Yeah, I mean, that's where you start, you know. And for me as an editorial side, it was a real reckoning because I realized I only saw the end product. I saw the beautiful end packaging. Like it was really a lot of learning. (laughs) Um, I laugh, but like, I remember I was like confused at the time because I didn't know where I was going. I didn't even know what questions to ask sometimes. So it was just literally diving into the deep end. Um, and I, like I said, I asked for so many favors at the time. <laughs> I felt like I had to keep going. Um, now I'm super happy I did, obviously. But, you know, I think it's okay to have doubts in the early days. Definitely. I think doubts are um, a very natural thing. Now, I hope I pronounce his name correctly. Is it Jerome Epinet? Is that? Mm-hmm, that's yes. Right. Oh, I'm thrilled with that. I should have just committed and not even asked. He is Ellis Brooklyn's perfumer. Can you talk me through the scent development process and how the two of you work together? 
Sure. So he's our main perfumer. He's done eight of our 10 cents. There's two cents that are supposed to still launch in Australia. Um, I have worked with two other perfumers, but he's our main perfumer by far. Uh, so I think it's really interesting because when you start working with a perfumer, it's almost like dating. And I say that because Fragrance is very difficult to describe. So it's about creating a vocabulary together because one person's idea of sexy is another person's like trashiness. Another person's idea of sexy is like somebody else's being clean, like smells like out of a shower. So it's about creating that dialogue and what these, when we use the word sexy, what does that mean? When we use the word sensual, what does that mean? When we use the word, you know, fresh, what does that mean? So it actually takes a lot of trial and effort, a lot of sniffing, a lot of mods or modifications of like original ideas. Uh, so the way I work with Jerome though is quite different, I would say probably from most brands, I guess. Uh, we don't use any marketing reports. <laughs> we don't use any like sniffing tests. There's no testing, it's just <laughs> us. <laughs> um, Honestly, I'm a founder brand, so I, it mostly starts from an idea that I feel like is missing or that I personally would want. And then, and then you then take we go that to there. him and off you go. Yeah. Yeah. So originally I would create mood boards, etc. I sometimes even would send a song or oh. something to like get the idea across. Uh, but I think we know each other well enough now and he knows the brand DNA well enough now where we don't even do that. I just had over an idea, written idea, actually. I love that. It really is like dating now that you just understand yeah, each other. People, yeah, some people still do mood boards. That's why I say that we're probably quite different because, because at the end of the day, I'm a words person. So for me, it's much easier for me to write a description than put together some beautiful mood board and like, here it is, you know, this is my idea. So I, so I did try mood boards early on actually, but it didn't work. So I was like, you know what? It's much better to create this vocabulary between us and then we go from there. So when you launched in 2015, the line was a collection of body milks. Why the decision to launch with, I guess, sort of an unconventional scent delivery system rather than a classic eau de toilette or a parfum? Sure. So first of all, I bootstrapped the business. I had no investors. So mm -hmm. we launched with not, I wouldn't even say a collection. We launched with two body milks. I'll call that a collection. <laughs> That's a collection uh, of two. A collection of two, a duo. Uh, and uh, we launched with body milks because at that time, I, that was how I was wearing scent. So I was pregnant. I was working in the New York Times. It was like a big open office floor plan. It was really obnoxious to spray perfume in a big open floor plan like that. So I always had a bottle of some scented lotion on my desk. So that was why I did it that way. And I just, you know, I've seen so many brands come across my desk. Um, I didn't know at the time how small of a category body care is compared to fragrance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I wasn't reading any marketing reports. So I was just like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to do it exactly. I just wanted it. Since it's a founder brand. I was like, look, I'm not starting a corporate brand. I get to be the founder. I, I want this to be as personal to me as possible. So, so yeah, that's how we started because that was how I was looking it. And then was it 2016 that you launched them as sort of traditional perfumes? 
Yes. So I knew that I always wanted to launch Oda Parfums, uh, but I was working on them. I have to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm skeptical of these brand launches that come across my desk and there's like eight fully formed scents suddenly, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure you've gotten them, right? It's yes. like, wow, I got this. Yes. You get this press mailer and suddenly it's like, wow, this brand didn't exist six months ago, but now there's eight scents in this, this you know, super designed collection. I just don't think scents work like that. I think that you start creating a scent. Sometimes it takes six months. Sometimes it takes two years. I mean, I've, I have scents that I circle back to that is still not done. And so we launched with four scents and that took, oh my goodness, I guess three years to come to, come to fruition, four scents. Because I started working on it, right, in 2013. I launched a two-by, yeah, three years. So... Mm. I think this is why I love talking about fragrance because I think with something like skincare or with makeup, once it's ready, you know, because it works. Like that's the criteria, the product works. But with fragrance, it's not about it working. There's there's always some sort of, you know, oh, we could change this one little element or we could do this or maybe this version was better. That is true. That's actually a very nuanced thing. But I have come to trust my gut. And mm. I say that because our best selling scent is Myth. And Myth was actually, I created it for myself. If I went into the market report, quote unquote market report, because we didn't use any, but if I was to guess, you know, when we launched, which scent would be the best seller? I would have told you, oh, our rose. Our rose scent should be the best seller. It's so likable, it's so beautiful, wear so well. I never thought it was going to be myth. And with myth, I told Jerome exactly what I wanted and he nailed it. So we had zero modifications, which is unheard of. Like that's just that just doesn't exist, you no. know? And um, but when I smelled it, I knew. And so I, I always go back to that because I'm like, in product development, you can get really confused, right? Like you start smelling 10 million things. Is, does this one smell right? Does that one smell right? But actually it is just like dating because you know, you know. Myth is my favorite. Myth is what I wear. Myth and West. Really? Yeah. Oh, good. I, that one is so personal to me. Like it really is. It's stunning. And then the, um, the, like the gel, that's amazing too. That's yeah, so I'm really into innovation. I'm a big science geek. So I just wanted to be able to deliver a product in a way in a formulation that was a different because let's be honest, fragrance is kind of like the same, same, same. Sure. And yes, and also to have a purpose, right? So I was constantly telling my readers, you know, if you are wearing a scent, you should moisturize, your skin should be moisturized, you should be, you know, prepped. And I thought, well, why don't we put the prep in the same bottle. So that's why there's hyaluronic acid in the Hydra Parfum and it's alcohol free because we also had some readers write in saying that they're sensitive to alcohol. So that was, that was really, that was really like how it came about. It's so good. That's I was about to say it's my travel essential, but who knows when we will be traveling next. So now just uh, completely off the I really want to come to Australia in September, October, because I have never been to Australia when the weather is nice. I always come like in July or like something like that. Yeah, it's it's not ideal at the moment. <laughs> mm. I know. I need to come. I need COVID to be over. <laughs> oh, I'm hanging out for it. I thought this was the year that I'd, you know, I haven't been to the US at all. 
So I thought this was the year. How wrong I was. Don't come. You know what? I would have tell. I would have told you come hang out with me in Brooklyn. It's so cool. It's so fascinating. It's so inspiring. But don't come right now because I don't want you to see the city like this. It's so heartbreaking for me. I'll wait till it's beautiful again, and we'll just pretend none of this ever happened. It'll be great. So in recent years, we have seen a huge rise in both the prominence and the popularity of niche fragrance houses. Why do you think that consumers are celebrating these brands and investing in smaller batch made scents? I think because scent is personal. And I think that there is still value. And this is the beauty editor in me. I think there's still value in these mass scents. I think though, a lot of people like me are looking to connect with their products more. And I think that's why niche is appealing because most often you have a founder who cares very much about what the product is being put out there and is caring less about the quote unquote marketing uh, aspect of whether or not to put out a scent uh, and is putting out a point of view. And I think that's super attractive, not just in scent right now, but in everything. Like I, it's so funny because one of my girlfriends is the found, a co-founder of this like very sustainable cleaning line called Blue Land. And I just received the package from her yesterday. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, it's like plastic free. She's doing all this cool stuff. And, and it's just cleaning products. And I was so jazzed by it. And, and I think that that applies almost to so many, I mean, to almost all categories, right? Like I want to be proud of what I'm buying right now. Definitely. I'm glad you've brought up sustainability because we've touched on clean ingredients but you your brand is a champion of sustainability and responsible sourcing beyond just the ingredients can you talk me through the brand's I guess sustainability initiatives and what sustainability means to you because I feel like there's so many different definitions and it can get a bit murky so sustainability is murky because it's always a moving goalpost and it's hard to get transparency Mm. so the, the, the sustainability part of our brand actually came along as the brand was being built. I did not start Ellis Brooklyn thinking I wanted a quote unquote sustainable brand. I started Ellis Brooklyn because I wanted a safer option to wear luxury fragrance because I was pregnant and that was what I was concerned about. But as I started sourcing clean ingredients, I think you can't ignore the fact that if you're using a lot of naturals, like what impact is this doing on the environment? And as much as we love sandalwood or rosewood or whatever beautiful, stunning natural, uh, they are very, can often be very consuming for the environment, for, you know, the people that work the fields. There's just so many other factors that come into play. And I think if you're a clean brand and you totally ignore that, like, I'm not sure that's the future. I think the future is like looking at what clean options we have. How are we responsibly working with farmers or whoever's, you know, farming those fields and collecting and harvesting? What's the impact on the environment of that? And also what could maybe actually be made, you know, in the lab with green chemistry? So I'm a huge champion of green chemistry because I'm like, well, you know what? If you can make this synthetic that's safe, super safe, and is saving all these resources, smells amazing, like I'm definitely open to it. So I think that that's the new clean beauty. I think when I first started Ellis Brooklyn was so much about naturals. And like, as much as I personally love naturals, I truly do. And they're beautiful. I think that if you're responsible as a brand, you have to think about all those other complexities. And there's even just the word 
natural. There's so much confusion around that because really petrol is like one of the most natural things that you can get, but I'm certainly not putting that on my skin. But people hear the word natural and they go, this will be better. I know. I always tell people there's good naturals, bad naturals, good synthetics, bad synthetics, because yes, mercury is natural. Mm. You know, lead is natural. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we don't want those things on us. So, so yeah, I do think naturals, you're totally right, has been somehow put into this like field of like all good. Oh, that's a fun noise. I... Uh- would love I'm the worst podcast guest. I have so many noises going on. No, it's funny. It adds texture to the recording. I the oh, <laughs> wordsmith, we can spin it. I would love to touch on your book, Skin Deep, which is a collection of I think upwards of forty of your New York Times beauty columns. Given that you have profiled just about every celebrity under the sun, what is the <laughs> best tip that you have picked up from one of your interview subjects? Ooh, I have two, two that I love, I should say. So I was traveling a lot. I was getting really nervous about like getting sick. This is pre COVID even. And uh, I can't remember what that's like a distant memory. Pre pandemic that that's going to be like a new, instead of like BC, it'll be like PP or something. Definitely. (laughs) Um, so I was traveling a lot and I was nervous about getting sick and I interviewed Nicole Richie a long time ago. I don't even know if she still does this, but she actually told me that she puts Lucas pawpaw ointment in her nose before flying. And I was like, what? And I, I remember I had gone to Mecca for training and training the stores in Australia. And I saw all this Lucas Papa ointment. This is before it was widely available. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I bought some and I started putting it on my nose. I have no idea if it works, but I still do it to this day. <laughs> it, I, I think there is merit to that because I do the same. I got this when I interviewed KC from Lanolips. Same thing with lanolin, 101 ointment, up the nose, done. You know what? So far, I feel pretty good, you know, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Yep, same. It's not Uh, hurting us. Totally. And then the second tip that I still stuck with me and I really, really love, and, you know, Ellis Brooklyn aside, of course, I love fragrance, but I love the idea of how she engages with fragrances. I interviewed Anna Kendrick, Mm. who is just adorable. Oh, I want to be friends with her. Yeah. Seriously, you want to, like, grab a drink? with her hang out with her um but she loves fragrance and I was like huh you know so you just never know who loves fragrance and who doesn't and the way she collects fragrance is that she will buy a new fragrance for any big moment in her life so that could be the beginning of a relationship that could be an end of a relationship that could be the close of a movie she bought she buys a fragrance for every movie she's in she also bought fragrances for like, you know, a friend's wedding, whatever it is. She uses it to commemorate memories. And she told me that she, once she opens that bottle, she's like, oh, I remember that. That I bought that when I was filming Up in the Air. And she, because fragrance is so tied to memory. And I was like, how beautiful is that? I love that idea. I love that idea too. And as you were talking, I thought, oh, I could do that. And then I've backflipped and realized I love fragrance too much that I would be like, and now I'm buying a bottle to celebrate this breakfast that I'm eating. And now I'm going to buy another perfume for dinner and it'll always take me back to this moment. So I think I maybe would take it a little bit too far. 
You know what? No one, no one will know. It could be, it could have been a profound dinner. Sure. Sure. I think my partner might realise as the um, dressing table continues to fill. There's not really any room left on it anyway. Who has been the most surprising interview subject? In beauty or in general? Let's go in general. Okay. Um, So I would say Keanu Reeves. Okay. Um, I, so when I started at the New York times, because I was one of the youngest or if not the youngest reporter, when I first started in the style section, I had to cover a lot of events. And I think there's some people who enjoy covering events, but I mentioned earlier that I hate covering red carpets. It's like the worst for me. I, as much as I like socializing, I realize in this pandemic, <laughs> uh, I probably naturally am an introvert. And so it was painful for me to like be on this red carpet. It's like a cattle call, you know? And, uh, but I had to do it. This was like me earning my stripes. And I remember I was doing an indie movie cover, well, covering the red carpet of an indie movie and Keanu Reeves was the main actor. And a lot of these actors, they don't want to do the red carpet either. They're annoyed. They hate answering your questions. Like they're, it's just not pleasant. He was not about to be rushed. He answered every single question. He was super thoughtful about it. I did ask, I don't even remember what question I asked him, but I remember it wasn't like your typical red carpet one. He like paused. He like sat there and thought about it. I mean, it was just the most unique experience and he didn't have any handler. Like oh, most of them have handlers yeah. pushing them along. Yeah, no, he didn't have any handler. He just was answering everybody's questions. Such a lovely experience. He was just able to like block everything out. He was not going to be part of that machine. Oh, I love hearing that. I love when people that are at that level of success and celebrity are actually really nice. A lot of people are really nice. I've never seen people, I've never seen another actor block out all the rigmarole in that same way. It's a he really skill. was just able to like, be, it is, it, it was beautiful. He was just able to be like, nope, I'm not going to be rushed. I'm not going to be part of that. I'm just going to answer my questions in a really thoughtful, nice way. And it's funny that that stuck with you from the beginning of your career. Yes, it did. Yeah. Because you know what I I realized is that when some, because you know, when you're a red carpet reporter, you don't feel that great about yourself often because you're just trying to get like that quote and everybody's rushing you along, everybody's pushing you. And to have somebody stop and just be so thoughtful. And yes, of course, it's Keanu Reeves that like adds an extra element, but it made me think like later down when I got more successful in my career, like it really matters how you interact with people. And to like sit down and whether it is to talk to an intern or talk to your retailer, like to just be focused on that person and not be sucked into like all the other nonsense. It's, it's beautiful. Oh, I love hearing that. You have been a part of the beauty industry for close to 12 years now, and you've been a beauty brand founder since 2015. Over that time, what have been the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry? Oh, it's huge. I think the biggest change I've seen is how we talk to the customer. So when I first started, it was very much this top down talking like, well, it was very much like fashion. It was like, oh, well, you need to go get this hottest color because this is the color of the season and you have to have it. And now it's not about that at all. It's about 
you know, whether it's a founder or brand advocating for their, for their customer or their client, you know, like it really is about like, well, I have eczema and I created this line and it helps you with eczema because I tried so many other eczema lines and none of it worked. So I really care about you as a customer. So I think that's a, I actually have enjoyed that change because after covering so many backstage fashion weeks, like it does get a little boring. And I have to say also, it's not realistic at all. Like who cares what some 18 year old model is wearing for two minutes down the runway? It's not real life. And so I much actually prefer what has happened with the shift because it is talking to, to women and anybody who's using beauty products in a much more realistic, thoughtful way. What changes do you think we can expect to see over the coming years? I think it'll be interesting to see how how social media evolves. And I see that because as much as I like social media, I also wish some of these social media trendy brands did better products. I think sometimes what I have seen, because I've covered the industry for so long, is sometimes I see these social media-led driven brands and they have amazing marketing, amazing packaging, talking to the customer exactly the way she wants to be talked to. But then you try the product and you're like, wow, I couldn't place this to be different or more efficacious or less efficacious, just very mediocre, very like down the middle, very safe. compared to a hundred other brands. Mm-hmm. And so then it becomes only about marketing and becomes packaging, becomes about how many followers you have. And I don't actually think that's pushing the beauty envelope forward. I think it's fun. So I don't think we have to like criticize it all the time, but I do think that we do need some really innovation driven brands that are like, not just about looking cool. My final question, what is next for Ellis Brooklyn? Oh my goodness. Well, so what has, what COVID has taught us <laughs> is that I think I knew this already, but I really, really understood it uh, during this pandemic is that every single launch, just going back to the basics of it has to be personal. I just don't think it's worth it anymore to like launch something just because you think you should launch something. And it was a reckoning and a listening thing for us because we launched two gourmands, which is launching in Australia in September, um, called Sweet and Salt. And they were really personal to me. And I, it's funny because everybody's like, oh, wow, it's genius. It's so perfectly timed for COVID. It's these two gourmand scents named so simply. But actually, a year ago, when I came up with the idea, I was like, oh, my God, naming it Sweet and Salt is too basic. I'm nervous. You know, like, we've never done colored bottles. Like, it was like a whole, it wasn't as, like, clear cut as people think it was. And I think that because it was such a successful launch during a pandemic, I was like, okay, yeah. We need to go back to our roots of just being like every single thing we launch has to be that good. And I think that's a good thing. And then on top of that, I also learned that there are certain countries that handle COVID better than us, like Australia and Germany. And so we are looking to expand more globally. So that way we're not, you know, right now we've been focused on the U.S. primarily. So, um, yeah, we're looking to expand more globally. That was V Shapiro, New York Times beauty writer and founder of Ellis Brooklyn, which you can find on Instagram at Ellis Brooklyn. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at Watts or at glow.journal. 
If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.